Uh, I, I regularly uh, read, uh, I guess, like Facebook or social media or different things. I'll see posts. Or I, I guess uh, I was thinking about maybe the way to say it is like uh, meme theology, uh, stuff that people just kind of throw up. And it's like, you know, little statements and kind of here's, here, uh, here's who God is or here's who Jesus is. And I'll read these different things at different times. And to be honest, uh, most of the ones I read, I stunned, uh, I'm stunned at how much of it is f- just false, that it's not what Scripture says at all. And, and so people will say things that are like partly true, that sound okay, but then when you stop and you listen and think about it, you're like, that's not actually what the Bible says. And, and usually, usually the ones that sound pretty good is because it's partially true. Or there, there's some truth in it. There's some truth as part of it. And you kind of go, yeah, yeah, And then you start to think about it. And, and maybe maybe I'm more so, uh, I just always think this way. I'm very particular about words and the way we say things. And so sometimes I hear it and I go, oh, I don't know about that. But then sometimes it's real obvious. And you start to, if you really start to think about what God says and what it is, I think is we elevate one part maybe of God's character or what scripture says. So that part is true. And we're like, yeah, that's great. But then we totally obliterate some other part. <laughs> and then suddenly you're like, well, that's not true at all. And so I was just thinking about different things that I've seen at different times. And one of the things like in our culture is we, we kind of like the idea of Jesus in our culture, like the love and the mercy and the grace. And so we see things where people say things like God and love loves and accepts everyone just as they are. And you go, yes, God loves us. And yes, God is, uh, is pursuing people. And yes, he's, he's coming after us. And yes, he wants us to know him. But does he just accept us just as we are? We go, well... There's a whole lot of passages that seem to say that's not exactly how it works, right? Like John 3.16, probably one of the most famous verses in all the Bible. So God, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish and have eternal life. God so loved the world. You go, yes. But then it says he loved us so much that he gave his son that Jesus came that we would not perish. That we are perishing and that we need him to come and save us. Or even the very next verses after that says, God did not send his his son into the world to condemn the world. And we go, yes, we love that. But then the very next thing says, but in order that the world might be saved through him, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already. And so it's not just God loves and accepts everyone exactly as they are. He loves us so much that he doesn't leave us right where we are and he comes to us. And the Bible says that over and over again. Right. Like in in Acts chapter two, when Peter stands up and he preaches and it says the people were cut to the heart. And they heard the power of the gospel and the good news of what God has done. And they say, what should we do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Peter doesn't just stand up. They go, what do we do? God loves you and accepts you as exactly as you are. Go on your way. No, he says, repent, repent and believe who God is. The same thing in Romans 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But there's confession and there's belief. There's trusting in who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And so oftentimes I think when I see those little statements or kind of the the meme theology, what we're doing is we're taking parts of what scripture says and then we take it out of context and we pit one part of who God is against another clear part of what scripture says. And we elevate one over the other. And then all of a sudden what we're saying is not actually true. It's misrepresenting who God is. And I think one of the biggest ways we do this right now, particularly in our culture, 
is we will put God's love and his mercy against his wrath. God is a, a God of love and mercy, but, but not wrath, right? Or, or we so downplay the idea of wrath and so elevate the idea of love and mercy that we start to get out of uh, the proper biblical tension. I, I say it that way because one of my very favorite professors in seminary used to say that. We must fight to stay in the center of the biblical tension, right? And so the center of the biblical tension is that God is love and he is mercy and he does care for us and he is long suffering and he is kind and gracious and all of these things. But God is also just. And God has a holy, righteous anger against all things that are evil. And both of those things hold perfectly together in his character. It's not one versus the other. It's those two things together are all those things together. And they're all together in perfection. And as Christians, we believe that they hold together in the cross of Jesus. That we see how God can be loving and merciful and also just at the same time. That he allows Jesus to come and take our place and fit and do for us what we've never done for ourselves. And God is just. And he pours out his wrath on all the sin of those that would put their faith in Jesus. But at the same time, he's perfectly merciful. And he says, come to me. And I will take your sin and I will do for you what you haven't done for yourself. But so often we struggle and we get those things out of balance. And I think the reasons we do is we miss the context. We don't read all of God's word. We like to take bits and pieces. We miss the context of what it's saying. We miss the fullness of God's revelation to us in the Bible. I think part of it, this is just my own theory here. But in the society, in our culture right now where we live, we like to make everything kind of into bite-sized little pieces and kind of extremes, right? God is either this or he's that. And the Bible doesn't speak that way. The Bible has a lot of nuance and it has a lot of depth in the way it explains who God is and who we are and the way those things relate. And so sometimes we begin to miss it because we're not seeing the fullness of what God has told us. And so I say all that because this passage that we're going to look at today has this, this thing that Jesus says that I think we can get really wrong if we're not careful. And through the years, I've had people come to me and ask this question, kind of worried about what Jesus says here. And it's in verse 31 and 32 in our passage. He says, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven. And in verse 32, he says, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or the age to come. And I've had people come and say, how, am I, how do I know if I've blasphemed the Holy Spirit? And I mean this in, in a very like earnest, I, I love Jesus and I don't want to do that. And Jesus says that's the unforgivable thing. So how do I wrestle with that? And so I want us to look at this passage together and really think about that together. What, what is it that Jesus is saying here? What is he warning us of that is so important that he would say, this is the, the thing that you can't be forgiven of. There's this thing here that he talks about. So it's a pretty big deal. But I want us to, to work through this together and really look at in context what he's saying and what he's talking about. And so the way I want us to look at this passage is first, there's some background that we need to see of just what's going on here that leads him to this statement, right? And so that's context. Context is always important when we read God's word and what he's saying and what he's teaching and the flow of thought and how he got there. And so I want us to see the background. Secondly, then we're going to think about what does he mean in context here? What is it that Jesus is saying? But then lastly, how do we live out this truth? How do we guard against this? How are we living out what God calls us to? And so let's just start 
with the background that leads to the statement of what Jesus is saying. If you've been with us, we've been working since the very beginning of the year, growing chronologically through the Gospels. We're not hitting every single story on the Gospels, but we're going through a lot of it. But we're kind of taking it as it's unfolding chronologically in Jesus's ministry. And so I've been saying his earthly ministry is right at three years. The first year was uh, the year of preparation. A lot of people don't know who Jesus is. He's kind of coming onto the scene. At the end of that first year, his, his popularity is growing. By the time we get to the second year, Jesus has become very, very popular. And there are crowds everywhere he goes. And people are getting really excited about who he is. And we're now right kind of in the middle of that second year. And so his popularity is kind of at an all-time high. People are pumped about him. They're starting to think that this could be the Messiah. This could be the promised one. And they're starting to even voice those things. Is this him? Is this it? And they're getting really excited because their understanding is the Messiah will come and lead them out. Lead them out from under the oppression of Rome. We'll, We'll take them and say, follow me and let's go and be a conquering king. And they're all like, could this be the guy? And so people are getting pretty pumped about this idea that Jesus could be the Messiah. But as his popularity grows, there's this thing that starts to happen in the second year of his ministry. And we see it start to grow and it really starts to take over in the third year. And that's the opposition against Jesus. Because of the way he talks and the way he says things and the way he points things and the way he shows that it's not just about Rome over here, but it's the very sin in your own heart and the things he's saying, he really ruffles a lot of feathers particularly of the most religious people, the religious leaders, the Pharisees. And they're starting to be threatened by who Jesus is. And so that's kind of the background of what's happening here. But as Jesus goes, he's continuing to preach and teach and he's doing these miraculous works. And that's what we have here. So look at what it says in verse 22. Then a demon oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. Right? So this is a pretty miraculous thing. This guy that, that uh, cannot speak, he cannot see, he, he's under the oppression of demonic forces, and Jesus, by his word, heals him. And people see this, and they're like, that guy couldn't talk, and he couldn't see, and now he can. It's a pretty miraculous thing happening right in front of their eyes. And then it says in verse 23, And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? Right? They see the display of power and they start to ask the question, could this be the son of David? Well, what does that mean? Could it be the son of David? Well, you know who David is. You know your Bible history. Actually, we're doing an overview of the Bible uh, at the nine o'clock hour. We've been talking about that. David is the king of Israel that lives about a thousand years before Jesus. And there's a couple things you need to know about David. Why that, why that phrase is important in the New Testament. David was king over Israel at a time where we called the United Kingdom, where they were all united, the people of Israel under this nation, and they were like the most powerful nation on the planet for about 120 years. And it was under Saul and then David and then his son Solomon. But David is this king that the Bible talks about as a man after God's own heart with all his faults and problems. He truly loved God and sought him. And they had this great rise to power. The Israelites did. And so there's this understanding that they have with David that's like, yes, we want to return to the days of David. We'd like for things to be like that. But there's also another meaning behind that because during David's reign, you can go read about it in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God gives a prophecy to David. And he says, there's going to be one, a descendant that comes after you that will be on the throne forever. 
It's a messianic prophecy talking about the Messiah that will come, that will come from the line of David, that will be one of his descendants, and he will rule and reign forever. And so what they're saying when they say, could this be the son of David, is they're saying this could be the Messiah. This could be it. He could come and lead us to all the things that we're wanting to see happen. And so they mean it in that way, but the son of David, that name has a messianic uh, meaning behind it. But also it's like, yes, maybe we're going to overthrow the government. And we're going to have a king like David who's ruling and reigning and will be over everything. And so they start to ask those questions. And as they do, you start to see the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees, get real upset. Get kind of worried about that. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Who, who said he's the Messiah, right? And part of it is, is, is pride. Part of it is a struggle with like what this will do to their own power. Part of it's pride in the sense of the Pharisees are going, no, we'll tell you who the Messiah is. You don't tell us. We're the ones in power here. We're the ones that know the scriptures. We know these things. We'll tell you when it's the Messiah. And so some of that going on. And so what happens is the people get really excited and they start to say this and they start to go, maybe this is him. And Jesus has been butting heads with the religious leaders of the day, calling out their sin and kind of pointing to those things which they don't like. And so look at what happens in verse 25 when all that's going on in the background. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every king, I'm sorry, go back, I'm going back, sorry, verse 24, I skipped ahead. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. So what do they do? They see this incredible, miraculous work that Jesus does. They hear people going, can this be the son of David? Can this be the Messiah? Is this it? And they go, no, 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 it's by demons. It's demonic forces that he's doing this. And so I want you to really think what they say in light of this excitement around Jesus. The religious leaders turn and say, no, 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 no. It's not the Messiah. It's not God's power. This man is demonic. This man is satanic. He's not of God. He's the opposite. He's actually evil. And they start to ascribe what Jesus is doing to evil. And so what they're saying, if if you really distill it down, is that Jesus who's doing these works by the power of the Spirit. As he walks, he's completely, perfectly in union with the Father, trusting the Spirit. And the Spirit's moving and authenticating the works of Jesus. And they are saying the works that Jesus are doing by the power of the Spirit are actually Satan. It's actually evil and it's demons. And so they're blaspheming the Holy Spirit. That's what they're doing. Blaspheme just means to slander, to speak evil of, to say something that's completely untrue and ascribe it to God. And that's what they're doing. And so Jesus hears this and this is where he speaks into that context. And so it's important that we have that context for what Jesus is now going to say. Right? So verse 25, knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the the strong man? 
Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Right? So Jesus answers them, and he begins to kind of take head on what they're saying. Right? So he does this miraculous work. He heals this man. People are getting excited that he's the Messiah. And they say, no, 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 it's by a demon. And Jesus starts very kind of uh, matter-of-factly. He says, that doesn't work. If you're calling me Beelzebul, Beelzebul means head of the house. Like head of the demons is what they're saying. This man does this by the power of the head of the demons, or he himself is part of that. And so Jesus says, if that's the case, that can't work because that means Satan is divided against Satan. Demonic forces against demonic forces. And he just takes a very kind of practical approach. If there's disunity there and they're not in the same place, then how is that going to work? And so he just takes that kind of head on and says, that's not the case. And then he turns and he says, and if that's true, if what I'm telling you is true, that Satan can't be divided against Satan, that that disunity can't bring this, then what I'm saying is I'm doing this by the power of the Spirit. And he says, if I'm doing it by the power of the Spirit, then you are opposing God. You're seeing the kingdom of God coming in front of you and you are now opposing it. It's a pretty big deal, right? Of what he's saying to them. And then he says, verses 31 and 32, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. And so I want you to think about what he's saying there. You're blaspheming against the Holy Spirit in his work. And so I want to ask a question. I want you to think about this with me for just a second. What does the Holy Spirit do? It's important to the context here. He's talking about the Holy Spirit and blaspheming the Holy Spirit and what that looks like and what happens when you blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. So what does the Spirit do? And you can actually get a pretty good idea just from the context here. Now, the Bible tells us a whole lot about the Holy Spirit and what he does and the way he works and what it says and what it tells us. One of those things is it tells us is the Holy Spirit is God. Right? We worship God who is three persons in one, the true and living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are same in substance, equal in power and glory. They are all three perfectly God. And the Holy Spirit is God. Right? So make sure that we don't forget that. I know that's a, that's a very central tenet to our faith. But sometimes when I talking about we elevate certain things and downplay other things, sometimes we do that with the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit is God. But then what does the Bible tell us about what the Holy Spirit does? And if you look even just right here in what Jesus is saying in verse 28, but if it is by the, the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus is walking and he's preaching and he's doing miracles and these things are happening. And he says, when I heal this blind man that can't speak, who's oppressed by a demon, the spirit of God has come and freed him from this. The Holy Spirit is at work and he's the one doing this. And Jesus is saying the Holy Spirit is authenticating my message. We are in perfect union and he is working with me in all these things. He's glorifying who Jesus is. That's so what's happening, right? In fact, that's what the Bible tells us later on. That's what Jesus tells us later on in, in John chapter 15. If you want to get a good grasp on the, the Trinity, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and how they work, go read the Upper Room Discourse. It's in John's Gospel. 
12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, or 13 to 17. You have Jesus teaching just hours before he'll go to the cross. And in that time, he's, he's talking to his closest disciples. He talks a whole lot about the Father and the Spirit and how they work. And he gives you, he kind of fleshes out for you what the Trinity looks like, the Trinitarian God that we worship. But he says this in John chapter 15. He says, I'm going to go away. And then the father's going to send the helper talking about the Holy Spirit and says, the helper's going to come who I will send from the father. The spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. Jesus says the spirit is going to come and glorify who I am. He's going to show you who I am. It's going to take what's mine and give it to you. And so the Spirit comes and what the Holy Spirit does is it it authenticates God's Word. It works through His Word. It points us to Jesus and it shows us who He is. It glorifies Jesus. He comes, the Spirit, in perfect unity with the Son and glorifies Jesus. And so what you have here is that's exactly what's happening. Jesus is speaking and he's healing and the spirit's coming and he's showing you what the kingdom of God looks like. The rule and reign of God coming powerfully right in front of them, right? The rule and reign of God. There's no blindness. There's no people that can't speak. There's no demon possession. The spirit comes and shows you what the rule and reign of God looks like. And they have the audacity in that to turn and say, that's a demon. And that's what Jesus is talking about. And so I want you to think about his words and what he's saying here in light of this text and that background and what we know about the spirit working and what Jesus even says right here. And I think he's telling us in the first half of that verse, therefore, I tell you, sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. Right. Or he says in verse 32, whoever speaks a word against the son of man will be forgiven. And I think the first half of those two verses, verses 31 and verse 32, is he's talking about external action. Sin in your life, things that you have done, things that you have said, actions you have had, right? Sinful things that you have done in your life. And I want you to hear what Jesus says, because what Jesus says here is there's nothing that you've done in your life that puts you outside of the reach of God's grace. Do you see that there? Every blasphemy Even speaking against the son of man, the son of David, he's talking about himself there. He says, even that. And read that and go, that is so amazing that Jesus says that. There is nothing. But then the second half of that verse and that tension that's there, he says, but if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, that won't be forgiven. What does that mean? And I think you can think of it as the first half is, is your outward action what you're doing and what you're, the sins that you have committed in your life. And then the second half is the internal attitude and motivation. That when God moves in your life, when the Spirit comes and moves, and what does the Spirit do? The Spirit points you to who Jesus is and what He looks like. And there's no sin that's unforgivable. But when the spirit comes and shows you that you need forgiveness and that you desperately need Jesus, if you blaspheme the spirit and you ignore him in that, that is the sin that's unforgivable. Does that make sense? And I want you to think about how that works for just a second. Here they're seeing these spectacular healings that are validating the ministry of Jesus, that are showing who he is, that he is the Messiah and he has come and here is his message. And they say, it's a demon. 
They say who God is is not who God is. And that's not how he works. And that is not true. And Jesus says, when you take who God is and you say that's not true and you blaspheme his name and you say that's not it and the spirit is validating and working in this, that that is the unforgivable sin. And I want you just to think about that for a second. What the spirit does. Again, you can go read in the upper room discourse and Jesus talks about how the spirit will come and will convict you of sin. Will show you your need. Right? The Spirit doesn't come and heap shame and guilt on you. He convicts you of sin. And He shows you that you're not perfect and that you're a mess and that you desperately need a relationship with God. And it opens your eyes to see Jesus. Yes. And you choose Jesus as the Spirit works in that. And He shows you that. But the unforgivable, when He talks about that, is when God is working and you're seeing that and the power is coming and you go, no. It's not it. And I want you to think about why does that happen? Or how does it, why does it happen here in this situation? What are they doing? I think the Pharisees miss it. They call it a power of a demon. You know, well, what? Well, it's pride. It's sin. It's they've, they've turned so inwardly about themselves that they're missing God himself right in front of them. And so God is showing them what is true. These miraculous works are happening right in front of them. And they go, no. They had this understanding. And it's so deep-seated. You see this throughout the Gospels. That they were the good people. And the Messiah will come. And he'll pat us on the back as the good people. And go, follow me. Let's go overthrow the bad people. Let's go get Rome out of here. Let's get them out of power. Follow me. Let's go. And Jesus shows up and goes, you need to repent. You're not saved by being a good person. You're not saved by being Jewish. And they go, huh, what do you mean? We're the religious leaders. We're the chosen people. How can that be? And their pride gets in the way that when God comes in power right in front of them that they can't see it. They are so down that hole of their sin, of who they are, making it all about themselves. So in their self-righteousness, they're missing The very thing that Jesus says. It's not the good people, right? Remember what we saw in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who understand that they are in great need. And they're missing it right in front of them. And so I want you just to think about that for a second. This idea of of, of blaspheming the spirit. Right? If, if blaspheming is slander or speaking evil or saying things that are untrue about who God is, what does that look like? Well, it may look like saying the works of God are actually a demon. And that's what it is here, right? It's pretty dire. But I think it also looks like when someone says, well, well I'm a pretty good person. And I've tried my hardest. And I go to work and I do my job and I try to be nice to my kids. So I'm sure God will welcome me into his kingdom. Is that what the spirit says? Is that who God is? That you can just stroll into his presence with my pretty good works? No, you're slandering the name of a holy, righteous, perfect God. Or you could say the flip side of that. Right? That's one extreme, but the flip side of it might be, I've made a lot of horrible mistakes in my life. 
had people say this very thing to me. I am a desperate sinner that has done so many bad things. You don't know what I've done. I have done so many things that there's no way that God could forgive me. Is that what the Spirit says? Absolutely not. But what happens is we start to make it all about us. Well, he couldn't forgive me because I'm so bad. Or he must forgive me because I'm pretty good. But in both of those, we're blaspheming who God is. He is holy and righteous in every way, but he's also gracious and kind and merciful beyond anything we can imagine. And both of those things hold perfectly together. And when we say that's not true, we're saying the opposite of who God is. Right? And I want you to think about when Jesus says that. When he's talking about blaspheming the Holy Spirit as being unforgivable. Now, does that mean that someone says, uh, I am so sinful, God could never forgive me. And so what they said is misrepresented who God is. And so God's done with them because of that. No, God is perfectly gracious and he continues to pursue and he continues to call us into himself. And a dear friend who told me that late one night, you don't know what I've done. And he now loves Jesus and he has been forgiven because God's grace is so good and so great. And so when we think about what Jesus is talking about, what does it mean? Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit means you knowingly hear the truth of who God is and you say, that's not true, and you slander his name. Say, I reject that God is that gracious. I reject that God is that holy. That is not true. And you hold to that. And you continue to reject his name. But God is gracious and he is good. And so when you start to think about all those things, you could, you could ask and you could say to me, well, how do you know that? How do you know that's not what the Spirit says? How can you emphatically say that that's the case? And the answer is the Holy Spirit is the author of Scripture. Men carried along by the Holy Spirit wrote down God's word and he has preserved it for us. And so when you start to try to hold those things together, maybe say it this way. Maybe this would help clarify it. Ask you a question. Is there anything that God cannot do? Really think about that for a second. We initially want to go, well, no, there's nothing God cannot do, but that's not actually true. God cannot lie. God cannot contradict himself. God is perfectly just. He cannot have injustice. God is so perfectly holy in every way that there must be payment for sin to be in his presence. But because he's perfectly gracious and he is perfectly loving, and he is perfectly merciful, he's made a way. Jesus has come to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. In the cross, God holds together perfectly his grace and his mercy and his wrath against all that is evil, and they come perfectly and fit together in Jesus. And the only thing that is unforgivable in that is when we see the goodness of God and what he's done for Jesus, and we go, no, that cannot be. We say that's not who God is and that's not what he's like. And we slander his name and his good, gracious, glorious picture of what he's done for us and how he holds that all together. 
And so God is so good that even in the midst of our brokenness and our sinfulness, he continues to call us to himself. And so I want you to see in the context here of what Jesus is saying, they were knowingly saying and seeing the works of God and then saying, no, 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 that's not God. That's Satan. That's demons. But when you come to God and you confess and you see the fullness of who he is, he meets you in the middle of that. And so how do we live out that truth? And maybe you've, you've struggled with that. I don't know. Maybe, maybe somebody sitting here today struggles with, just like I said, you don't know what I've done. How could God forgive me? And that's saying something that's not true about who God is. And so what do you do in that? And the answer is that you repent and you believe and you put your trust not in yourself and what you do or your understandings or your thoughts, but you lay them down and go, God, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to transfer my trust from what I do and what I think and the way I feel it holds together. And I'm going to take you at your word and I'm going to trust you. When Jesus says here, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. There's nothing that you can do that puts you beyond his reach. And so transfer your trust to him. Come to him and lay it down. And there will be days in your life where unbelief creeps in. Is that really true? How does that work? I am so sinful. Or you start to think the the lie. I'm pretty good. And those things, you continue to cling to Jesus. You continue to put your trust in him. You've heard people say, well, what if I blaspheme the Holy Spirit? And maybe you've thought that. Maybe you read that and go, oh, no, maybe I did that. The wonderful thing is if you're worrying that, It's because the Holy Spirit's convicting you. This is how good God is. You start to go, oh no. The Spirit comes. He starts to show you. Now our flesh gets mixed into that. We go, oh no, it's all it's all me and I did and God's going, No, 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 it's all Jesus. And he continues to point you to Jesus and what he's done, and you can rest in him. That he is that good and that loving and that gracious. And that he's done for you what you could never do for yourselves. And so the answer to this real simply is this. Trust him. Lay down yourself and your own thinking and your own trusting in yourself and put your trust in him. Transfer your trust to Jesus and rest in him. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the glorious good news of the gospel. We thank you that you tell us. that you've come to us to do what we've never could do for ourselves. And we thank you for that truth. I pray when we start to believe lies of our flesh, of the world, of the things around us that are contrary to what you have told us, that are contrary to what your word says, that are contrary to what the spirit is leading us and pointing us to in you, would you remind us that you are everything that you alone are the one that can meet us in the midst of where we are, that you alone can do for us what we can never do for ourselves. We pray that we would see that afresh today. 
that we would lay down all our own doing and put our trust completely and totally in you and all things. We pray all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.